Good evening. So we ended off last week with the development of the Mishnah, discussing, of course, the great sages of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir, and Rabbi Huda Hanasi. To the development of the Mishnah, we went briefly to the, the development of the Talmud as well. The century and a half that, fin- that follows the completion of the Mishnah corresponds to the period in history when the Roman Empire adopts Christianity. The Empire's conversion from paganism to Christianity will have a severe impact on the Jewish people to our very day, which is why we need to discuss early Christianity. Moreover, as we all know, that in the beginning, the early Christians were all Jews. So early Christian history is Jewish history. So as you might recall from a couple of weeks ago, that from the time of the invasion of the Romans, from the time of Pompeii, particularly following the murders of the sages by Herod the Great, the Jewish people were in turmoil. Soon, these feelings of turmoil, the divisions, would lead to not only divisions amongst themselves, but the great revolt against Rome. In this atmosphere of tension, of turmoil, when the Jewish people were yearning for a leader who would help them throw off the Roman yoke, the seeds of Messianism, of of yearning for a savior, which would lead, of course, to the Christian idea, would be first sown. First of all, what is the Jewish concept of Mashiach? What is Mashiach? What is the concept of Messiah? Because in order to understand why the Jews would almost unanimously, if he lived, reject the man from Nazareth, we first have to understand what Mashiach is. Mashiach, of course, (coughs) is a Jewish concept. The Jews bring the concept of Mashiach to the world. The Rambam, Maimonides, points out that one of the only pluses of both Christianity and Islam is that they took this Jewish idea of Mashiach, of a world to come, of a purpose to the world, and spread it throughout the pagan world. So wherever the Christians, and we'll see uh, in the next lecture, the Muslims go, they will convert the pagans into a belief of um, a Mashiach, of a Messiah who will bring this world to its ultimate redemption. The Mashiach, of course, Messiah is a Jewish concept. It comes from the, the, the word anointed. Um, the first mention is in Shmos, in Exodus 30, 22 to, to, to 30, where when Moshe anoints, his Moshe, Moshe makes the Kohanim, Aaron and his sons, he anoints them, he makes the Mashuch as the Kohanim Gedolim. <coughs> Later we find, for example, in Shmuel, that Samuel anoints his David by the river. He goes to the river and anoints David as the king of Israel. And there are numerous examples in Tanakh of where this idea of anointing, of, of, uh, of being, making someone a Meshuach, so making somebody a Messiah, someone who is anointed. But there is only one. Mashiach, the Mashiach, the Mashiach, with a capital T, is only one. And he has not come yet. In fact, 
so essential is this concept of Messiah, is this concept of Mashiach, thank you, is that it's one of our 13 principles of faith. One, the, the twelfth dogma of Amuna is Animami Memura Shlema Vivias Hamashiach that I believe with complete faith in the coming of the Messiah and even though he may delay nevertheless I anticipate every day that he will come perhaps the greatest vision of what the Messiah will be look like comes from Yeshaya, from Isaiah. Many of the prophets discuss it. Most of the, of the later prophets discuss the content of the Mashiach. But listen, look at source number one for the, the, the source sheet. There are three verses from Yeshaya, three pesukim from Yeshaya. The first is from Yeshaya, Bez, Gimel, Isaiah 2.3. In the days to come, the mount of God's house shall stand firm above the mountains and the tower above the hills. <coughs> and all the nations shall stream to it. And the many people shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mount of God, to the house of God of Jacob, that may instruct us in his ways, that may, we may walk in his paths. Look at Isaiah 2.4. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Does it sound familiar, that quote? Where is that quote found? The most... The United Nations, a place where, which certainly does not stand for that. Uh, and look at the third quote, the third ver- verse. At the time the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the kid, the calf and the beast of prey shall feed together with a little child to herd them. So in the time of the Messiah, the time of Mashiach, all of these wonderful things will, are going to happen. And there are many, many verses. I want to just look at source 2 from it. The Maimonides, the Rambam, collates all of these verses found in Tanakh, found in Scripture, the many Gemaras, particularly in Sanhedrin, which discuss the Messiah and the Mashiach, the many words of the Midrashim, which discuss it. <coughs> and in his Laws of Kings, at the end of the Laws of Kings, it discusses the Mashiach. So I want to just do one, one part of the, of the Miramba, Mishnah Torah, Laws of Kings, chapter 12, source number 2. The King Messiah will arise and restore the kingship of David to its former state and original sovereignty. He will rebuild the sanctuary and gather dispersed of Israel. All the ancient laws will be reinstituted in his days. Do not think that the King Messiah will have to perform, the Melech will have to perform signs and wonders, bring anything new into being, revi- <laughs> revive the dead, or do similar things. It is not so. <coughs> if there arise a king from the house of David, who meditates in Torah, occupies himself with commandments, observes the precepts prescribed in the written and oral law, prevails upon Israel to walk in the way of Torah, fights the battles of the Lord, it may be assumed that he is the Messiah. If he does these things, and succeeds, rebuilds the sanctuary on its site, and gathers the dispersed of Israel, he is beyond all doubt the Mashiach. He will prepare the whole world to serve the Lord together. Basically, Mashiach means 
the rebuilding of the temple. God's word to, to mankind. Peace in this world. Influencing the masses to follow Hashem's world, word. Now, indeed, throughout Jewish history, there have been many Mashiachs, there have been many false messiahs. I myself met two of them one time. It's a very funny story. You know, my, I, when I was younger, my beach, there's one guy, Jewish guy, tall, long beard. He used to always claim he's Messiah. And he would dress like in this white, white garb and this white clothes and, you know, think he's, a, he's, he's, he's the Mashiach. So, one time a good friend of mine saw him and he was in a, re- in a restaurant in Miami Beach where I grew up all upset. So my good friend asked him, he said, why are you so upset? You're the Messiah. He said, I can't believe it. You see that guy over there? So there's another lunatic. He says, this guy thinks he's a Messiah. What a not he is. What a crazy guy this guy is. He thinks he's the Messiah. He should know that I'm the Messiah. Right? There have been many false Messiahs. There was false Messiahs with Jesus. There was false Messiahs with Shabtai Tzvi. There are many false Messiahs. Certainly, anyone who thinks the Lubavitcher Rebbe, it's also, he's not, he was not the Messiah, he wasn't, and he will not be. Right? He did not do any of these things to be the Mashat Mashiach. In order, and, 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 it, I mean, I'm not saying anyone who claims it, or anyone who doesn't claim it, to fulfill the, Mishak, the words of Mashiach, you have to bring everyone back, fight God's wars, rebuild the temple, all the Jewish people will come back as of you, and you're accepted by the masses. Right? That should be, that is a litmus test, that the masses accept you as Mashiach. The Jewish people will see, will reject the man from Nazareth. That's in a little while from now. So as I mentioned, this time period was a time of tragedy. It was a time of tension. It was a time of disarray. And the Jewish people in fact, there were several false messiahs at this time. In Archelaus, the time of Agrippa, there were several individuals who claimed to be a messiah, a Mashiach. They never caught on. But the Jewish people were looking for a messiah. And we discussed two weeks ago about Kochba. Rabbi Akiva thought he may have been the messiah. And then he said when he saw he failed, that he was not. In fact, the Rambam, Maimonides, explicitly says that the Rabbi Akiva saw Rabbi Akiva failed and ultimately died, it was clear he was not the Messiah. He was not the Messiah. He did not fulfill it. This was an individual who at one point actually knocked down Rome. As we discussed two weeks ago, that for six years, he beat back Rome. He totally wiped out the 22nd Legion. He was a great leader of Israel. People thought he may have been Mashiach. But when he failed, and when he died, it was clear he was not. He was rejected at the end of his life. <coughs> but in this time of disaster, now remember, our sages tell us, when is Mashiach born? What's the birthday of Mashiach? The ninth of Av. That's what the Medrash says. That the ninth of Av is the birthday of Mashiach. Times of struggle, times of, of where people are yearning, they're, not, they're looking for a savior. That is the prime time of Mashiach. In fact, Ezekiel, Yechazkel, talks about, of course, the end of time with this great battle of Gog Umagog. We discussed two weeks ago, the Jews were in major wars with Rome with millions of deaths. Millions of deaths. People said, this must be the Mashiach. The Mashiach must be around the corner. Look what's going on over here. As we also learned two weeks ago, that because <laughs> times are so bad, and because of internal splits, the Jewish people had broken up into many, many different divisions, but four primary groups. The first group were the Sadducees. 
Sadducees were the rich aristocrats assimilated. Many of the Kohanim were Sadducees. The second group were the radical zealots who insisted upon fighting with Rome, who were fervently religious, looked religious, acted religious, but did not follow the sages. They followed nationalistic passions. The third group were the majority of Israel, not only in the words of Josephus, but in the words of the Talmud, the Prushim, the Pharisees, all of us. <laughs> we are all the descendants of the descendants of the Prushim, of the Pharisees. And the fourth group were the splinter sects. The, the Essionim, the Essenes, the Dead, the, the Dead Sea tribe. Those sects, which you mentioned, had very bizarre viewpoints, which we'll discuss a little bit more today, that was the fourth, fourth sect. There were two groups in particular which would sow the ground for early Christianity, and in fact, the early Christians, when they came from the Jews, there were not that many that did, but those that did came primarily, almost exclusively, from these two groups. The first was from the Sadducees, the assimilated Jews. Why did they? Call, why were they easy targets for Christians? You have to know that by the Sadducees, by these assimilated Jews, they had a leader. They had somebody who had lived pretty much a little few years before historians would say that Jesus lived. He lived from 20 BCE. He outlived him till 50 BCE. But Philo was, for those who remember, we discussed Philo two weeks ago, Philo of Alexandria was a world-renowned philosopher. He was, to this day, many of his works, he wrote in Greek, many of his works are still extant. He is studied to this day. Philo was a quasi-religious Jew, not thoroughly religious, but what Philo did is he was very into synthesis with Roman culture, which we discussed was the antithesis of Judaism two weeks ago. He was very into synthesizing the two, but not only synthesizing the two, Philo had very distinct not even non-mainstream, but problematic viewpoints on the Bible. Philo believes that you can learn the Bible, Tanakh, as allegories. Now there are certain things that are allegorical, and the Talmud says which parts are allegorical. But Philo went ahead, and even for the commandments, starts saying we can learn them as allegories. Tefillin, box, you have a box, you have this, you have parchment, it represents this and that. Well, it doesn't necessarily need the law. We can have the thought of it, as long as you fulfill the spirit of the law. Sound familiar? The spirit of the law, that's the main thing. It's just the themselves are only an allegory for what they represent. The details of black and square and this way and that way, they're not essential, they're not crucial. Even if it's not perfect, that's okay. These ideas, especially outside of Judea, especially in places like Egypt or north in Syria, where out of the main centers of Judaism, would gain a foothold. Philo's ideas were popular. He allegorized <laughs> um, many parts of the Torah. Philo's philosophy did affect many, especially of this Sadducee class, but it wasn't enough in and of itself to create a group called, called the Christians. Christians, of course, are in the beginning Jews. Hebrews, Jews, just like us. It wasn't enough. It would be another one of these groups that would really be the, the starting point of Christianity, and that is the Essenes. Now, the Essenes, the Essenes, we know from Josephus, we know from other historians, Pliny the Elder and others, but we don't know that much. The, the Essenes 
were a very, very apocalypse based group. They believed the end of time was coming. They had went to the mountains and they took on all kinds of practices. They looked around Judea, which had been independent, was in shambles. Rome, this this vulgar, bloodthirsty pagan culture was dominating the, the cities. There was internal war. There were people who wanted to get to do strife. And they literally left the population centers, went out near where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, near Engedi, went to where people were, there were less people, and lived their lives. Who were these Essenes? Actually, Josephus himself says he tried out to be an Essene for a little bit. He didn't like it. What were the Essenes? They were people who were constantly yearning for the Messiah. The Dead Sea sects, of course, is one of the, these sects. There were, there were many sects of them. For example, one of the things they did, there was celibacy. Okay. Celibacy, they, which of course goes against the Torah, the first commandment is to be fruitful and multiply. But celibacy was part of the thing. They looked at it because Rome was so promiscuous, it almost had a re- reactive effect to pull back completely and become celibate. That idea of celibacy, of course, would drip, drip down into the Christian religion. <laughs> Certainly, until the Protestant Reformation, all Christian clerics were supposed to be celibate. Paul, who we'll learn about soon, was celibate. The issue for this was that if you were celibate, you're not going to propagate. So the Essenes became dependent upon proselytizing. The idea of proselytizing will start also once you're going to have celibate groups and not going to spread out. So immediately you have these Essenes groups where the only way they can grow is not by natural growth. Like the Muslims, they can just sit in a country and grow and grow and grow and grow. Many fit, many kids. The Essenes had no kids. So they had to proselytize. So part of this culture will be a culture of proselytizing. The Essenes went to the mikvah many times a day. It's, it's remarkable. Even secular Jews are so oblivious of Judaism. Many of them think baptism is like this Christian idea. has nothing to do with Judaism. It, it's the mikvah. They took it from us. Conversion in Judaism necessitates mikvah. Many Jews went to the mikvah often. Hasidim go to the mikvah every day, many of them. It's not a foreign concept. John the Baptist was, according to almost all historians, an Essene at first. He came from the Essenes. This idea of baptism, this idea of, self, of purifying yourself, that would also go down to Christians, we'll see. And the Essenes were pacifists. They disavowed the use of weapons of warfare. They went, they were waiting for Messiah. They're sitting in the mountains waiting for Messiah to come because this cannot go. Now, this idea of not resist not evil would also go to the Christian world. Now, we'll see when the Christians actually take power, they would be the biggest murderers in the history of the world in the name of, of their Savior, in the name of their fake God. But they, but in the beginning, the Essenes said we have to pass this. You know, you you do see some of these people like Leo Tolstoy would, of course, be a pacifist. The Quakers, these these ideas come from this Christian idea: resist not evil. Okay, don't resist not evil, which, by the way, is the most evil thing in the world. Basically, it means if you see Hitler or whoever running around the world, you don't stop him. Okay, I mean that's not a Jewish concept. Judaism says. Don't let, if you're being chased by a murderer, take care of him. If there's evil in the world, expunge evil. Don't let evil stay there. 
this, these were small groups, and the truth is that the Jewish Christians, or the Jews as a Christian, was a very, very small group. Josephus doesn't even discuss them. They were so small, maybe there were 3,000 of them at the time of the first destruction of the temple. That was 40 years after the man from Nazareth had passed away, or, was, or, or if he passed away, right? if he was murdered, whatever happened to him. Okay? So, amongst these essays, we'll see that's where the main Christian groups would, get, would come to. Now, I just want to give you an example of what early Christians were like. Their early Christians, again, were completely Jewish. Totally Jewish. There was, for hundreds of years after Christianity spread, a group called the Ebonites. Now, you're not going to read about them in the books, because they disappeared hundreds of years ago. The Ebonites, which comes from the word Evion, poverty, Poverty. These are people who went around poor, went around believing that Yashka, Yeshu, was a human being, not of a virgin birth, a human being who is not a god. They did not believe in Trinity. They believe, they did most mitzvahs, almost like a messianic Judaism today. I mean, but even more, they kept kosher. And pretty much, for the most part, like Jews who happened to believe in a savior who was rejected. Not that different. And there were the Nazarenes, and there were other groups like these. These groups would be crushed by the Christian groups in the 4th and 5th century, called heretics, rejectors of the faith. And we'll see that how that goes. But if you would imagine what the early Christians were like, they were probably a lot closer to what would develop after Paul. Okay, that, that was part of the original uh, group. So they had, now we're going to talk about uh, Yeshu from Nazareth in a minute. They assumed that this guy Yeshu was a Messiah and he was killed. And when, some, when a Messiah gets killed, okay, there is a, 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 almost a cognitive dissonance. The word cognitive dissonance means you can't accept that your Messiah is dead. So he'll make up all kinds of things. No, he's going to come back alive. Right, he's died, but really he'll come back alive. There is no, zero concept of second coming in Judaism. There is zero concept of second coming in Judaism. Second coming was made up by Christians in order to justify the failure of their Messiah to come. So there is no second coming in Judaism. Right? Judaism says, we saw the Ramadis, if the guy dies, he's not the Messiah. If, if he doesn't build a temple, he's not the Messiah. Nowhere does, it, does Isaiah say, he'll die, and then he'll come back. No. So it became a justification after they couldn't accept that he had passed away. Who was this man from Nazareth? Who was the individual called Joshua, or, or Jesus, or Yeshu, or what people today call Christ? Christ, of course, means the Greek word, for Messiah, the anointed one, the Mashiach. So, it is impossible tonight to discuss who this individual was. There are almost 3,000 books debating who or what this man is. But one thing is clear. Nobody knows for sure. Nobody knows what he said. There were no witnesses. There was nobody who was there. He wrote nothing of the Christian Gospel. All of the Christian Gospels were written decades after he died. And none of the Christian Gospels themselves, the people we'll see, ever, the people, the Gospels that were ever saw the man, and everything was hearsay. Look at source number three. 
This is British philosopher Bertrand Russell, famous philosopher. In his piece, Why I'm Not a Christian. <coughs> Historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. We know what people said about him. But the people who said it will say, they didn't see him. It was literally monkey see, monkey, monkey. No one, none of these people ever saw him. So, very little is known. We know that historians assume he died 34 of the common error. Now, there are several references to, in the Talmud to somebody called Yeshu. It's in three places in the Talmud. There are certain people who like to say that this Yeshu, one says Yeshu, then from Nazareth, refers to Jesus. It's very, very difficult to say that. It's difficult to say for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's clear from the Talmud there are two Yeshus in the Talmud. And their their nicknames, and that neither of them lived when historians say that that the man from Nazareth lived. One of these Yeshus lived 150 years before the Common Era, way before, almost 170 years before they they think that that, that, um, Jesus lived. The second Yeshu lived 100 of the Common Era. Neither of them, neither of them, um, would have been in the life in the time period that that, that the man from Nazareth was, and nothing that the Talmud says even remotely fits into any of these Christian gospels. It talks about a sorcerer who was who was killed and and negative things about him, but it doesn't fit into anything that's out there. Parenthetically, it's very important to know that if you open the standard Talmud, these three folio, there's 2,711 blots, 2,711 dapim and shots, three blots, or these, three of these folios, talk about this, they're not found in the standard shots. They're not found, found in the standard Talmud. They were taken out in the Middle Ages because, as we'll see in a few weeks from now, there are many, many debates the Christians forced the Jews to debate. They burned the Talmud many times. And in these debates, the Christians would always say, oh, that's talking about, maybe you're referring to our, uh, to our, our quote-unquote Messiah. Most of these Christian debates were by apostate Jews. Jews who so hated their Judaism, they converted out of, to Christianity. Nicholas Dodd and others, Pablo Christianity, who hated their Judaism and became the ultimate enemies. It's almost like some of the pro-Palestinian Jews. They're more pro-Palestinian than Palestinians. They want to show, they go to the utmost extreme. So some of these Jews, when they converted, particularly in Spain, when they converted out, they went straight to the cardinals, straight to the bishops, and said, I can prove that Talmud is against Christianity. And they would use these folios. They took it out. If you look in something called Chesronas Hashas, a book, which is a small book, has all the things that were taken out by the censors or taken out by people who are concerned in the Christians. These three folios are there. It's in the Amsterdam version of the Talmud as well. Parenthetically, the Arbarbanel, Don Isaac Arbarbanel, who was a great rabbi in Spain who led the Jewish people out during the Spanish expulsion. So he says in his book, in the commentary of Daniel, his commentary in the book of Daniel, that it's not worth debating the subject since it can be claimed that the aforementioned disciple by the name of Yeshu was someone else. We have not made an issue of the matter and have accepted their view. <coughs> and that view is that who the Talmud is talking about cannot be the, 
Christian, uh, who the Christians refer to as Yeshu. In short, Jewish literature then does not acknowledge, does not discuss, which is remarkable, because the time of the Talmud, the Mishnah, the Medrash, it's all written down in the 300 years from the beginning of Christianity till the end, until it's accepted by Rome. It's not touched, it's completely ignored. Not only do the sages ignore this, this Jesus, if he lived, but Josephus ignores him. Josephus would have been a contemporary. He not only would have been a contemporary, he would have been around after the time of the early teachers, like Paul and Peter and James. I hope I'm not teaching too many people about <laughs> the Christian Bible, but he would have been around at that time, and he doesn't mention them. There are one or two pieces of Josephus, which parenthetically mentioned something, but most historians think they were added later by Eusebius of Caesarea, 4th century Christian um, uh, historian, bishop, and that Josephus ignores him completely, which of course is another question mark, who is this guy? Nobody knows who he is. But the best one can say, and what you get the picture is that this Yeshu was at some level an observant Jew. And he really, and he himself had almost no novel ideas. Either there were things that were Philo was saying, or he was just reiterating things in the Bible. The, probably the two most famous quotes that the Christian world says, and then one day you say to them, by the way, it's in the, in the, in the Bible, in the Tanakh, is, love thy neighbor like you love thyself. And it's of course in Vayikri Yates. And that you should love God with all of your heart, and with all your soul. Does sound familiar? That's from Shema. <laughs> Okay? We say that every day. That those are all way predate um, Yeshu. At any rate, the, this Christian sect, Christian Jews, Christian Hebrews, what they were in the first century, probably would have met the fate of most of the other Messianic sects of the time. In fact, the rabbis, right after the destruction of the first temple, made a point to get these people out of the Jewish nation. The Talmud in Brachos 28b, Chafchas Beis, talks about when they formulated the Shemona Esrei. And they had 18 brachas. Shmona Esri means 18 brachas. But you know what? We have 19 brachas. So the Talmud says, what happened? All of the sages went to formulate the Shmona Esri. And at that time, Rabbi Gamliel, who was a descendant of Hillel, and the head of the sages said, is there nobody who knows how to make a blessing against the heretics? The heretics, of course, are these splinter sects, like the early Christians. Some historians say primarily the early Christians. Shmuel HaKatan, then arose that I'll, I'll do it. Shmuel HaKatan was a sage who was famous for saying, Bin Paul when your enemy falls, don't rejoice. Which means he's a guy who in general loved Jews. Only somebody who loved the Jews could actually make a prayer to curse those who were misleading Jews. So the Lamal Shinim becomes the 19th blessing of Shmone Esrei. Right? Lamal Shinim against the scoffers, against those who, who, who falsify and come against authentic Judaism. When we say the Lamal Shinim, that was in approximately 80 of the common era, right as Christianity starts trying to infiltrate. Okay? In fact, Maimonides, the Rambam, says that that is the most important blessing of all the blessings in the exile. 
Okay, the blessing which we almost we bless that these people should be destroyed, that the enemies of Hashem should be be destroyed. They basically split ways. They pushed them away. So where did all the Christians come from? We know that Christianity is the biggest, most large, the largest religion in the world, and it has been since the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. Islam is still only about sixty percent or seventy percent of worldwide Christianity. Okay, so there's almost two billion Catholics, Protestants, and any all, all forms. Almost two billion Christians in the world. Where in the world there's a few thousand Jewish? Christians who are being pushed out of mainstream Judaism, who are not being affected, who can't, can only grow by proselytizing primarily, how in the world today do we have such a large Christian world? Where did they come from? For this answer, you have to look at a very colorful, colorful personality who appears on the scene right after the death of Yeshu who is given credit by almost every historian for Christianity, for spreading the message of Christianity, if not actually crafting what Christianity was to become. He was a Jew, his name was Saul, and he came from Tarsus. Saul Tarsus was in Asia Minor, tur- currently Turkey. Saul of Tarsus would become Paul. The Christians call him Saint Paul. Paul, Saul of Tarsus was an assimilated Jew who went to Israel he was assimilated coming up from Asia Minor from Turkey he said he tried out being a Pharisee and he said at the time he was violently against the early Christians he himself fought against the early Christians fought against his Christian Hebrews but following a mystical encounter we're on the way to fight against them near Damascus he, and he writes in, in his letters he had a vision and in this vision Yeshu comes and tells him don't fight against them several years later he emerges as a missionary proselytizing to the Gentiles and when he re-emerges re- he is going to have the most successful missionary Beginning of anyone. No, Islam will, we'll discuss next lecture, will spread not by ideas. <laughs> they will spread immediately by the sword. Christianity in the beginning was, 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 was a revolution of ideas. Ultimately, it forcibly converted most of the world by the sword. But it begins by ideas. He was enormously talented and ambitious. And without Paul, Christianity would not have made it. And without Paul, you would not know what Christianity is. Almost all ideas which we're going to get are going to start out with him. That's why we don't know anything, almost anything, about this Yeshu or who they call Jesus. Now, Paul had a problem. Because we'll discuss very shortly why Judaism and eventually user-friendly Judaism, Christianity, would be very appealing to the Roman masses. It would be very appealing. We'll discuss that shortly. But you have to know that what was appealing was the, the social justice, the moral values, the details, the fine print was really not. He can give a lecture talking about love and peace and universal, and people would eat it up. If he would start talking about how to check your house for Pesach, or how to keep the, uh, the laws of Borer on Shabbos, or what bracha you make on half a slice of pizza, he would lose them. 
He would lose them. I, even today, Lahavdil, you can have an ortho, you know, you can have a crowd. I can lecture uh, for, for 40 minutes on Shabbos on a nice philosophical or Muslim topic or nice warm topic, Jewish history perhaps, but you get, get people for 50 minutes to discuss Boer, you have to be hardcore. You have to be, you want to set the details. You want to know how you do it. You have to, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, people are not as interested in the fine details. And certainly pagans were not going to want to hear all the laws. And moreover, we'll see, they're not going to want to have circumcision. Who in the world wants to circumcise themselves? They were so into their bodies. That's the last thing they'd want to do. The early Christians, however, who were completely were not led by Paul originally. They were led by Peter and James. James is claimed to be the half-brother you know, of, <laughs> of Yeshu. They were, again, much closer to Jesus. They believed in he, that he was probably a man, that, that they kept Jewish law. They did not let in converts. They did not let in converts. But Paul, Saul of Tarsus, wins the day. Paul wins. He wins. And he starts to convert the Gentiles. Now, before anything else, realize this. I mentioned this two weeks ago. Once you bring in Gentiles, and he changed the laws of conversion, he basically said there's two tracks. I discussed the Council of Jerusalem. Once you let in Gentiles, basically you have pulled the Christians out of the Jewish people. I think I mentioned two weeks ago that somebody, a Reformed Jew, once asked me where I think reform will be in a hundred years. And I said, a Gentile nation. I said, how do you know that? I said, I have historical proof. <laughs> I said, once you change the laws of conversion, once you change conversion, 50 years later, maybe he's a Jew, maybe he's a Gentile, a hundred years later, Gentile. By a hundred years after Paul, 90-something percent of the Christian nation will be considered Gentile. Gentile. The, the conversions were no circumcision. They were a different type of conversion. And that would pull them out of, uh, of Judaism. It wasn't 90% out of a hundred years, but within 200 years it was 90%. Paul also creates the doctrine of replacement or, superstition, uh, or, or superseding. He had the belief that there was a new, new testament, and not, and not an old testament, that the Jews had been rejected, and that the Christi- Christian people, the new testament, will be the, um, the, the main thing. And of course, there's no longer a need for commandments, observances, and rituals. You can have the spirit of the law. You can go to the heart of the matter. Circumcision is one way to show your covenant to God. There's other ways to show it as well. You don't have to keep the Sabbath, as it says. You don't have to keep kosher. These are all things, of course, in the Bible. Right? And the, the Christians don't follow in their Bible. They don't follow it. So, the, Paul said it supersedes. Paul, Saul, of course, of Tarsus, would be utterly rejected by ancient Judaism. He would put his attention by the Gentiles. But this rejection would lead him to dislike the Jews. It would cause a hatred to the Jews. He himself said he was kicked out of many synagogues. Many, many synagogues. They kicked him out. Can you imagine somebody coming in, proselytizing in the Jewish synagogue? We'll invite, we'll make all the Gentiles, we'll convert the Gentiles of the world, we'll, we'll make up new laws, we'll do what we want. So in that hatred, at some level, that Paul would have, would of course reverberate. We'll see that later on. 
ultimately Christianity will have the Jewish philosophies and theologies to an extent and some trappings of ritual but it would take in a lot of Roman, Greek and pagan thoughts Paul's shrewdness was to keep the parts of the Bible the parts of the Jewish thought which were appealing to the Roman world Okay, look at source number 4 this is John Geiger who's a professor of religion at Princeton University Christianity preserved all the advantages of its Jewish heritage but without the only two factors that might otherwise have inhibited its growth the obligation of the ritual law and the close connection between religion and national identity by proclaiming that, that the Christ was the end of the law and by presenting itself to the world as the new spiritual Israel Hellenistic Christianity was able to reap the political and social fruits that had been sown by three centuries of Hellenistic Judaism. We'll see shortly how. Ultimately, this Paul, this, this Jewish boy, Paul of, uh, Paul of Tarsus, who made Judaism friendly to the pagan world, who would create this package to sell to the pagans, to the Gentiles around him, would be, now it doesn't say anywhere in Christian literature in the, in the main text, but the, the, their tradition is that he was killed in Rome 67 of the Common Era with Peter and that's where the Vatican is today their churches the church of their Peter and, and Paul is where the Vatican is today now this is a lecture on Jewish history even though tonight it sounds like we're leaving Jews a little not Christianity so we're not going to get involved in the discussion of the development of Christian dogmas as Trinity the Virgin Birth the Resurrection nor many of the heresies and the fights that went on for hundreds of years which knocked out groups like the Ebonites and the Arians but I wanted to stress when you look at the history of Christianity it is a man-made religion it's now Hashem talking mass revelation to millions of people giving a divine decree it is completely developed by man voted on by man and we'll see how much surely completely at the creating as Rav Shamshul first would say that the Christians created God in their image whilst the Torah creates man in God's image they made God the way they wanted to they made the religion as they went along okay small example 325 of the Common Era is probably the most important Christian council it's called the Council of Nicaea and this settled certain disputes first of all and that until that point there was a major debate with, Christian, with Jesus this is, this is 325 of the Common Era where the, the, the major debate where many 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 people felt that Jesus was a man <laughs> not a God the Nicene Creed would, would vote they would vote and it was a close vote that he was only God and it's heresy to say he's a man now it would take them hundreds of years to beat out what's called the Arians in fact the Goths and the Vandals those conquering Spain and France would, at the time were Arians they believed he was a man but that's what they voted on they also vote to change now they, a lot of these votes are to separate Christianity from Judaism so listen what they do they separate they change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday right because they want to distinguish themselves from the Jews now interestingly enough what's one of the first things the Reformed Jews did in the early 9th century they changed Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday too they, all, they followed the Christians 
Right? It's unbelievable. Early Reform Judaism, until, you know, later on, when it, you know, today Reform Jews are mostly descendants of Orthodox Jews and Russian Jews and Romanian Jews from 120 years ago, but early German Reform had reverence, reverend was the head of the temple, and they had Sunday services. Okay? They changed the services from Saturday to Sunday. Passover, which until 325, the Last Supper, Easter, you know how the Christians based based this Easter? When the Jews celebrated Passover. That's when they knew when Easter was. Whenever the Jews celebrated Passover, they celebrated Easter. They would separate that in 325 of the Common Era. And amongst, they had 200 Gospels, they only canonized four, <coughs> primarily. Origen, the great Catholic father, confirmed this fact. He's like, this is the language. And not four Gospels, but very many out of these we have chosen. They basically hand-picked what they wanted and what they didn't want. The Christian Bible would only be decided, by the way, in the Council of Trent. That's in the 16th century, 1546. And it was a, it was a vote on the bottom line, who they're going to accept. It's 24 yes, 15 no's, and 16 abstained. That's how you have the King James Bible, the, the, the Bible today. That was in response to the Protestants. Okay? But I want to say one thing. These four canons, it's remarkable. The four Gospels which were accepted were the Gospels of Mar- Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? None of them were written by these individuals. All historians say it was by somebody later. No one knows who wrote them. No one has any idea who actually wrote them. There's there's theories. Clement did it. This one did it. But no one knows who. These are the four that they they made the four canons. Matthew, John, Mark, and Luke. And no one knows who actually wrote them. And can you imagine our Tanakh, our Bible, the five books of Moses, Mass revelation. God speaks to the whole Jewish people. And we follow God's laws. These four candidates were voted on after much debate. They weren't written by the individuals themselves. Nobody really knows who wrote it. It was some early Christian. And that is the core of the Christian Bible. Some anonymous book that was voted on, which no one, which was not also, it's assumed, or by almost all historians, that the author who wrote the book never saw Jesus himself. Because it was written dozens of years later. So everything's second or third hand by an anonymous author who never saw anything firsthand. It's not God's word. It's not, everything's hearsay. Okay? I remember I discussed this job at my table. I said I once had a bunch of high school kids come to me. And, t- and I have very often, I have religious groups coming in, I- I- coming in, and they asked me, and I, I, this group was a bunch of evangelical kids. I really, I warned them, please, you know, ask me questions about Judaism. Don't ask, why don't believe, of course they ask me, why don't believe in Jesus. This. So I said to them like this. I said, do you know what? I'm a Levi. I'm a Levite. That means that I'm going back 30-something hundred years on my father's side. All the way back to Levi. And to my knowledge, I've had no conversion in my family. That means I, my ancestors, were at Sinai. I have a direct tradition going back. So I looked at the, the four boys in the room. One or two, one of them was a Filipino, one was an Asian, one was Irish, and one was like a, he, some, you know, a real wasp. So I said, what? Just a white guy. So I said to him, when did you become Christian? I said, well, you're a Filipino a couple hundred years ago. Because, 
There's no way he was before then. Yeah, the Asian, maybe a hundred years ago, you were either missionized, said you're Irish, almost definitely your, your ancestors were forced at the sword to accept Christianity. And you, British probably, also either forcibly converted or missionized hundreds of years after Jesus lived. None of you could trace yourself back. In fact, there are almost no, I don't, I don't think there's a Christian in the world who knows when they became Christian. Because the vast majority of Christians, look at today, South America, all the Spanish people, very fervent Roman Catholics, Mexicans. Do you think, when do they think they became Christians? 16th, 17th, some 18th, 19th century? By missionaries telling them stories about some guy? They never saw anything, they never heard anything. They bought into a bunch of stories. And the missionaries themselves were either bought in or were forced by swords. In fact, most of these Jewish Hebrew Christians who, who who started religion, they would ultimately be wiped out by Islam, and there's not even survivors of them. They were assimilated into Islam. So all the Christians, is everyone on somebody else's hearsay. They don't have a first-hand report of anything. And the third thing is that these four Gospels, they're already written almost 80, 90, 100 years into the religion. Besides the other Gospels, which would be hand-picked, so you're going to get a, a certain viewpoint, it was slanted at that point, right? So when you find things against the Jews, it was already slanted. And when we're going to see things about the Pharisees, they were already hard feelings against the Hebrews who rejected their Savior, their fa- face, fa- false Messiah. Now I want to just emphasize now and, and focus on how easy prey Rome was for Paul. Why Paul, when he realized the rabbis had already made a, a blessing against heretics, he was not getting any more Jews. You know, they were limited out to the Essenes. The Pharisees hate, rejected them. Paul got kicked out of synagogue after synagogue. He realized he's going to go for the Gentile world, and he's going to get them. The Gentile world was ripe for this. Because the Gentile world in the first century, as we discussed two, two, two weeks ago, was a world in decay. There was a cesspool of decadence, of violence, of promiscuity. The public bathhouses were filled with orgies, with all kinds of lewdness. And people who were intelligent, or people who were in the slave groups, who were abused, were looking for outs. They, they, weren't, um, they weren't enthralled by it. Another important fact is that there was a constant threat of rebellion with the, with the German barbarians. <coughs> the life seemed to be always anxious you were at the, 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 the hand of fate there were 30,000 gods plus in the Roman polytheism so much so listen to the words of Pliny the Elder Pliny the Elder lived shortly after the destruction of the first temple throughout the whole world says Pliny the Elder at every place in every hour by every voice fortune alone is invoked in her name spoken we are so much at the mercy of chance, that chance is our God. They were anxious. Life was insecure. There were mass fires in Rome. There were plagues. The gods themselves were fighting. And, and, and society itself was decayed. The Jewish people were a sizable minority. They were monotheists. They had family values. They had purpose. They had peace. They seemed happy. They had answers to life. They had, they had faith in something. Look at source number five. This is Michael Grant. Professor Grant translated Tacitus. Tacitus, of course, is a great Roman historian. He trans- translated his Annals of Imperial Rome and was uh, one of the great is, uh, historians in Rome. He wrote 70 books in ancient history, particularly on Rome. Okay? This book is from the Jews in the Roman world. 
numerically, source number five, numerically, the Jews were fewer, they the Jews were fewer in those days than they are now. Perhaps eight million. But no less <clears throat> than seven million of these eight million were in the Roman Empire, where they constituted between six and nine percent of the population. In the eastern provinces, the percentage was perhaps as high as 20. Compromising as they did such a high proportion of the total number of inhabitants, they could scarcely fail to exercise an influence upon events. Given their highly distinctive beliefs and customs, so divergent from the Greek or Roman way of life which surrounded them, it was predictable that their relationship with their neighbors would become both dramatic and explosive. And in fact, many Christians convert to Judaism as we discussed the past couple of weeks. Onkelis, the, the grandchild of Nero. In fact, Josephus writes that Nero's wife was a Jew who loved the Jews. This is the person who destroyed the Jews, was attracted to Judaism in Rome. The Jews were kicked out of Rome twice for quote-unquote proselytizing. We know that Jews don't proselytize. Jews don't try to convert people. What was the thing? Romans were looking at the Jews and they wanted to convert. Okay? Look at source number six. This is Howard Shachar, who is a professor of modern history, um, professor emeritus at George Washington University. The conditions were highly favorable. The old paganism was decaying, and sensitive minds were repelled by it. The clear-cut monotheism and the rational practices of the Hebrews, expounded with charm by the Hellenized Jewish writers, made a deep impression. There were a great number of converts, if not officially to Judaism, at least to Jewish practices and ideals. So great was a Jewish effect on the Roman Empire, and particularly in the city of Rome and the people around, that Seneca, the Roman orator and senator, anti-Semite as he was, listened to a quote from Seneca. This abominable nation has has succeeded in spreading its customs throughout all lands. The conquered have given their laws to the conquerors. The conquered, the Jews, have given their laws to the conquerors, the Roman Empire. Now, it doesn't mean that it was overwhelming a majority of Roman converted. Be a lot of people being enchanted by, excited by Judaism. What turned some of them off? Well, again, there was these technical laws. They were they liked the family values of Judaism. They liked the moral messages. They liked the, the idea of a savior, idea of a purpose, the idea of, of 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 a meaning to life, a world to come, a God who cares. That's what attracted them. Not all these details. Not all these and it didn't help the fact that the Jewish people were re- viewed as rebels. Remember, the Jews were the one rebelling constantly against Rome. They were the troublemakers of Rome. So that's going to turn people off. That's exactly what Paul taps into. A Rome who's looking at Judaism from the outside, with some people converting, others Judaizing, looking how beautiful this religion is. But there are things that pull them back. There was the technical laws. They were the Jews. And we'll see that Paul would try to separate, as the rabbis themselves try to separate the Christians from them, they would try to separate themselves to market themselves to the pagan world. And the pagan world was right for this. Now, the pagan world would split. The Roman Empire would split to Rome, would be the Western Empire, and Byzantine would be in the Eastern Empire. Rome would split into two in the 3rd century. And the Byzantine Empire 
would try to compete with Rome. In fact, Byzantium, which is Constantinople, or Istanbul today, would be a center of decadence. It would take the worst of the East and, and the West and try to outdo Rome. They wanted to be more Rome than Rome was. In fact, Byzantine, uh, in the common vernacular, is referred to as more coarse, more fancy, coarse, indulgent in, in, in lifestyle. Right? Byzantine life was very, very hedonistic. It was very into, uh, of course, the mosaics. Little, little things from the Byzantines actually seeped into Judaism, including their mosaics. If you look at the synagogues in the 4th and 5th century, they'll have Byzantine mosaics. Unfortunately, um, very often, the, the, the Jews pick up some of the negatives of the culture around them, and many of the Jews assimilated in the Byzantine Empire as well. Christianity would overtake, and particularly in the Byzantine Empire, Christianity would make major, major inroads. First of all, they were smart. They went for the woman. Women are more spiritual, and they knew that if they got the woman, they would get the man. So they started going for the woman. And women had very little rights in pagan society. Okay? They also, they would appeal to a world which was crumbling. Okay? And the Roman Empire crumbled internally because of their decadence, because of their loss of wealth, and externally because at the time they were being attacked by all kinds of Roman barbar- uh, German barbarians. And they kind of lost their will to fight. Christianity between the 260 of the Common Era and 300 would become immensely popular. While at the same time, Rome would try to squash it. There were many, many tens of thousands of Christians who were killed at that time. But as much as they tried to squash it, it became popular amongst the lower classes, amongst the slave class. In the year 312, Constantine is the emperor, emperor of Rome. And Constantine would convert. That would not only be the beginning of Christianity being accepted in the Roman Empire, because in 313 after his conversion, he would legalize it, but it begins the beginning of many, many edicts against the Jewish people. Constantine's mother, Helena, had already converted, and with a famous story, but this famous story, the Battle of Milovan Bridge, for those who don't know, he claimed, he saw, as he went to battle, there was a fight between Constantine, another emperor, Maxentinus, for the leader of Rome, and he claimed as he went to battle, he saw the sun and a cross together. There's about three or four different versions of that story. None of the first ten. Eusebius has one. Lusutius has a different one. Whatever it is, he, saw, he claimed to see some vision, and he converted. Okay? Constantine, by the way, was prone to visions. He, he had a vision a couple of years earlier of seeing the sun god when it, were fighting in Gaul. Um, he, he had visions so he's claimed to see the sun and the cross and he converts the next year he gives the edict of Milan which legalizes Christianity in the empire doesn't make it the state religion it's not true that he made it the state religion it legalizes it okay but the interesting thing is that Constantine was a murderer he certainly had he was a pagan un, unbaptized he certainly had any, had, had any morals he was constantly murdering and killing he would be the one to start Christianity this idea of a sun god 
and cross would kind of go together. They would merge more pagan packets in, in there. That's why in the scene in 325, the pagan things would overcome the Nicene Creed would include Trinity. It would include um, that Jesus was uh, coming from uh, uh, a God from birth, which is nonsensical, but it was already a, a, a pagan idea. All these things would win because there was a merger. Look at source number seven. Source number seven is Thomas Paine. For those who forgot their American history, Thomas Paine is the author of Common Sense. The book, which right before the revolution spread out and was the, the almost the textbook for for fight. So this was about the Christian religion and masonry. This is Thomas Paine in one of his works called "The Origins of Freemasonry." Masonry. The Christian religion and masonry have one and the same common origin. Both are derived from the worship of the sun. The difference between their origin is that the Christian religion is a parody on the worship of the sun in which they put a man whom they call Christ in the place of the sun and pay him the same adoration which is originally paid to the sun. Of course, the sun, Jupiter was, all these were the big Roman gods, Apollo. As I have seen in the chapter on the origin of the Christian religion. Look at source number eight, also a famous early American, Thomas Jefferson in a letter to John Adams. The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the Supreme Being as his father in the womb in a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Okay, Jews always believe this, but he's saying in, 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 in the secular world as well. That's Thomas Jefferson. When they came to power, the Christians were not the nation of love. Okay? First of all, they... Didn't, no longer would proselytize by word of mouth. They would use their power to use a sword to forcibly convert the masses. And they would take on the pagan world. And of course, once they were taking on the pagan world, the one sore thumb were the Jews. The Jews would become, this would start in the 4th century and go all the way to the Holocaust. There was a famous call, book called by Jules Isaac, which basically was a 600-page book which showed how Christian theology and anti-Semitism was the leading cause of, of, of the Holocaust. And he ends his book speaking of the embers of Auschwitz and the cross mending together. Instead of a sun and a cross, you had the embers of Auschwitz. He said that Europe was made right for a Holocaust. It's a famous book. It's called Jesus and Israel. I forgot what the book was called, but it was a book in French. That how the Christian anti-Semitism would become prevalent. Listen to, uh, I, I don't think I put it as a, as a source, William Nick Nichols, in his book on Christian anti-Semitism, A History of Hate. The very presence of the Jewish people in the world and continuing to believe in the faithfulness of God to the original covenant puts a great question against Christian belief in a new covenant made through Christ. The presence of this question, often buried deep in the Christian mind, could not fail, cannot fail to cause profound and gnawing anxiety. Anxiety usually leads to hostility. But before even Constantine, the Christian leaders, looking at the Jews as competition, looking at the Jewish people were the people who claimed that they had a covenant, the people who who rejected their Messiah. We'll start seeing a change in their tone. In the beginning, the Jews weren't the killers of Christ. They weren't over deicide. They weren't, they were just wrong. 
Now you'll see how it gets amplified. Listen to Origen. You don't have this as a source, but this, this I added later today. Origen, who lived as a Christian um, bishop, uh, theologian, lived 185 to 254 in the Common Era, on account of their unbelief and other insults which they heaped upon Jesus, the Jews will not only suffer, suffer more than others in, ju- in the judgment which is believed to impend over the world, but have already endured such sufferings. For what nation is in exile from their own metropolis and from the place sacred to the worship of their fathers, save the Jews alone, and the calamities, the calamities they have suffered because they were a most wicked nation, which although guilty of many other sins, yet has been punished so severely for none as for those that were committed against our Jesus. Now listen to Justin Martyr. Okay, a saint in the Christian world. He lived from 170 to 236 of the Common Era. Actually, this <laughs> is with Hippolytus. So now then incline thine ear to me, and hear my words. And give he thou Jew. Many a time does, does thou boast thyself, and thy, thou didst condemn Jesus of Nazareth to death. And this giveth him vinegar and gall to drink, and thou dalvant thyself because of it. Come therefore, let's consider together whether perchance thou dost boast unrighteously. He then says, uh, he quote, uh, then he quotes on how they're going to destroy throughout. Gregory of Nisa, this is already the 4th century, 331 to 396 of the Common Era. Slayers of the Lord, murderers of the prophets, adversaries of God, men who show contempt for the law, foes of grace, enemies of their father's faith, advocates of the devil, brood of vipers, slanderers, scoffers, men whose minds are in darkness, leave it of the Pharisees, assembly of demons, sinners, wicked men, stoners and haters of righteousness. This was one of the, this was probably arguably the top two or three Christian leaders of his generation. And that's what he's telling the masses. <coughs> but it was a contemporary of his. This contemporary, who's called St. John, not St. John the Baptist, but St. John the Golden Mouth, John of Christosom, who was, a, who was a, the bishop of Antioch in, of Turkey, who in his homilies takes it to a whole other level. And this is going to be used for anti-Semites all the way up to the Holocaust. Listen to what he says. This is, these, if you look at even the 19th, 18th century, Christian theologians constantly praise this guy as one of the most articulate persuasive Christian spokespeople ever. This is what he has to say. The Jews sacrificed their children to Satan. They are worse than wild beasts. The synagogue is a brothel, a den of scoundrels, the temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults, a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assassins of Christ, a house of ill fame, a dwelling of iniquity, a gulf and abyss of uh, perdition. The Jews have fallen into condition lower than the vilest animal. Debauchery and drunkenness have brought them to the level 
of the lusty goat and the pig. They know only one thing, to satisfy their stomachs, to get drunk, to kill, and to beat each other up, like stage roads in Cochran. The synagogue is a curse, obstinate in her error, she refuses to, he- to hear, to see or hear. She has deliberately perverted her judgment. She has extinguished with herself the light of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, this is, listen to his words on the God's punishment. Imagine, this is one of the greatest theologians of all time. His works are going to be studied in every monastery throughout the Middle Ages. In every monastery throughout the Middle Ages. This is what the Christian clerks and Catholic clerks are going to be studying. And monks. But it was men, says a Jew, who brought these misfortunes upon us. Not God. On the contrary, it was in fact the God who brought them about. If you attribute them to men, reflect against that even supposing men had dared, they could not have the power to accomplish them unless it had been God's will. Men would certainly not have made war against God or in Him. Is it not obvious that it's because God hated you and rejected you once and for all? Right? And then He says, it calls on and on about killing Jews and hating the Jews. Okay? Indeed, I mentioned before that even the Christian Bible, those four canons and the canons that come afterwards, which were handpicked, which were basically written without any divine providence, okay, would have an anti-Jewish slant. Okay, would be against the Pharisees. In particular, I just wanted to say one thing, which you know, <coughs> which is more common because in the time Thessalonians or any of the less lesser known things, in Matthew and in Luke. <laughs> There's something called the woe of the Pharisees, which is basically the woe of the Jews, where they're, the Jews are criticized for hypocrisy and perjury, and and and, and criticized for being hypocrites and being ostentatious. These theories, these spewing of hate, children of demons, killers of God, murderers, idolaters—that would do- dominate Christian thought for hundreds of years and make the Christian world hate the Jews. The seeds are planted in the beginning. Okay? When Constantinus, who is the son of Constantine, becomes the ruler of the Roman Empire, he will begin full force banning Judaism. He will come against Judaism, he'll make all kinds of decrees, and then he dies. And then a remarkable thing happens a brief respite, which very few people know about. Julian, who the Christian called Julian the Apostate, becomes the head of Rome. Julian the Apostate was a pagan. This is the year 360 of the Common Era. And he basically tries to turn back Rome from away from the Christians. And in turning back Rome, he became the most pro-Jewish Roman emperor. So much so, this is a fact, he promised to rebuild the third temple. He made, started on the process. He made efforts to build it. Actually, if you go, if you take the, the tour of the walls, if you go to the southern wall, you'll see on one wall is an inscription from Isaiah. I saw this years ago when I took the tour. And I remember they told me that that was from his reign. They saw it inscribed into the wall. They were confident that the Messiah was coming again. It was a passage from the Ayushaya. Listen, look at source number nine. Because <laughs> this is Amanius Marcellonis, who was a chronicler of Rome, contemporary of and friend of Julian. Julian thought, so a Roman pagan, Julian thought to rebuilt at an extravagant expense the proud temple once at Jerusalem. 
and committed this task to Alpheus of Antioch. Alpheus set vigorously to work and was seconded by the governor of the province. When ball, fearful balls of fire breaking out near the foundation continued their attacks till the workmen, after repeated scorchings, could approach no more and he gave up the attempt. Julian goes to build. Now most historians assume there was a major earthquake in the Galilee in 363, destroyed the city of Sipori, that that it was an earthquake that did it, or maybe it was as well was Christian um, vandals and sabotage. But either way, the, the stopping the building of the temple was viewed by the Christians as divine intervention. Divine intervention. Unfortunately for the Jews, and two years later, he would fall at battle, and the Christian Empire, would, Christians would regain control. Valentin would become the next emperor, and for the duration of the Roman Empire, it would be Christian. So much so that only 20 years later, Theodosius goes ahead and converts, forcibly now says that the state religion, state religion of Rome, is Christianity, and at that point, disbands the Sanhedrin. At that point, forces the Sanhedrin to disband. The Jerusalem Talmud would stop because of that. And the other thing that would happen is that the Jews would be forced to write down the calendar. Hillel, the, not Hillel, the old Hillel, but Hillel would be forced to decree the calendar which is used to our very, very day. He'd have, before the Sanhedrin got disbanded, he went ahead and, de- and, and did all of the months till, you know, till the coming of the Mashiach. Let's be a little because time is limited. The Christians would continue to persecute the Jews. They would ban Judaism, they would ban religion. We'll see so, how much so, so soon. After 50 plus years, close to hundreds of intense anti-Jewish decrees, edicts, no intermarriage with Jews, thank God for that. No, 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 no dealing with Jews, no conversing with Jews, no talking to Jews, a, a, forcibly closing down synagogues, killing the Jews, pushing them to convert. Okay? And there were Jews who converted under duress. They came up with a theory. Could, didn't it make sense? Remember this, this anxiety that the Christians have that the Jewish people are still around? They were rejecting their Messiah. They were the Christ killers, the children of Satan, demons. Why are they still around? They should have disappeared already. And they had to grapple with this. Comes of one of the most famous Christian theologians, Augustine. For the Floridians, right? Northern Florida, there's something called Saint Augustine, right? He was no saint. The guy was himself in his own, you know, discussion of his life was lustful. He was sinful. And he struggled with it. So much so that he was actually the, the original the concept of original sin. <laughs> okay? He's an individual who always had his own struggles, quote unquote, with this. So he wrote a book called The City of God. Okay? That was written in 410 after, after the, the first time Rome got wiped out by the Vandals, right? You ever heard of the Vandal, the Vandalized? The Vandals were the first group to, to sack Rome. And the Romans were in shock. They were in shock, especially they converted to Christianity. They were told the second coming is coming soon, right? Remember, the early Christian Bible says, 
he's coming back in a few years. Jesus is coming back. Hey, Christian Bible, the Messiah is going to come back. Hey, the Messiah is going to come back short soon. He didn't come back. And of course, they would then justify, eventually he's going to come back. Right? So they were, they were flabbergasted. He wrote a whole book to justify. But in this book, he deals with the Jews. And he creates a concept that the Jews are the witness people. The reason the Jews are still here is they have to be witnesses. That when Jesus finally will come back, they're going to testify about it. Okay? Now, look at source number 10. I'm not going to read the whole source because time is limited. But go to the last part of the bolt. The bolt. And therefore, he has not slain them. That is, he has not let the knowledge that they are Jews be lost in them. Although they have been conquered by the Romans, lest they forget the law of God, and in their testimony should be of no avail in this matter of what we treat. But it was not enough that he should say, Slay them not. Should they at least forget thy law? Disperse them. Um, and not everywhere, so the church, which is everywhere I'm skipping, could not have bit, had them as witnesses among all the nations to the prophecies which were sent before concerning Christ. What Augustine says is that the Jews are to be witnesses. They're going to be witnesses. And at the end of time, they'll convert. But they'll be around to the end of time to witness the, the triumph of Christianity. And in fact, the witness theory was accepted by the Catholic Church. Church. In fact, the only people the Pope saved during the Holocaust were his Pope's Jews, the witnesses in Rome. The anti-Semitism decrees that continue. 415, Rome makes it illegal to build new synagogues. No new synagogues anywhere in the Roman Empire. 418, Jews are barred from public office. 533, in the councils of Orleans, until 541, Jews are banned to convert Christians. Now, of course, Jews don't positize, but Jews cannot convert Christians. Of course, there was some conversion in the Middle Ages, but very infrequent, and if you did, you're at risk of your life, because Christianity banned conversion to Judaism. 553, Justinian has a Justinian code, which basically rips away the rights of Jews throughout the Byzantine Empire. Okay, they basically took away any of the rights. Not only did he take away the rights, he banned reading the Bible. He banned studying Mishnah. He banned celebrating Passover before Easter. And he couldn't even give testimony in court. And Judaism was under direct threat. The Jews of Spain in the, in the early 700s, in the early, <coughs> early 7th century, excuse me, were given the option or convert or die. Convert or die. And 90,000 Jews were, were forcibly converted in the 7th century. In the beginning of the 600s. No one knows this. And Spanish was going to be completely wiped out. And all of the Jewry throughout the Middle East and Byzantine looked like they were going to be destroyed. And then a remarkable thing happens. It would shake the, the Christian world, and it has effects this day also. Comes a Muhammad in Saudi Arabia and splits the world in half. And this would be a counterforce Christianity. In fact, they would take, overtake Spain shortly. And that's how the Jews would be able to practice religion. Because this Muhammad, who in the beginning of the 7th century, would be studying his own false prophecies, 
ultimately for the Jews, it would be a counterforce about of Christianity, and it would have the effect of saving them at some extent from the Christian persecutions, because it would take over all of northern Africa and the Middle East within a short period of time. We, this is all for this lecture, and not next week, because unfortunately I have a scheduling issue now, but in two weeks from now, uh, we will discuss Babylonian Jewry before Islam and the rise of Islam. Thank you.